Hi, welcome to Obscuria Filmcast. Please click and subscribe and be uh, a part of our fan base and interact with us on YouTube and on Instagram. You could find us there. Uh, this evening's episode is one of my is my favorite film of all time. It's Clue from 1985. I literally have seen this movie over 100 times, well over 100 times, and I'm not kidding. It was one of those movies my mom taped off a, a TV with a VCR. And every Saturday morning after Saturday morning cartoons were over, I would put in Clue and watch it every Saturday for the entirety of my childhood, basically. And then uh, it kind of fell out of my life. And then a few years ago, I was kind of depressed. So I went into Best Buy's website, found out which Best Buy in New York had Clue, called the guy up, said, do you have it? Is it there? He said, yes. I drove on down there, paid uh, $5.12 for this DVD. And when he put it in my hand, I was just like fist pumping for a second. I'm like, yeah, I got it. Meanwhile, the cashier went behind the counter just watching me, waiting for me to actually buy the thing. Anyway, and so I got it there, and I would watch it before I would go to bed. Not the entirety. I would put it on, and I would fall asleep in the morning, put it on, getting ready for work. And then I would do that for a while. When I get serious about uh, a girl in a relationship, I sit her down, and I, and I make her watch Clue. And I'm not kidding. So this this movie is one of the most uh, I just think it's funny. And I rewatched it again for this thing. And I still laughed my I laughed a lot. It was it's hysterical to me. I love it. And the performances were amazing. Uh, what makes this movie obscure is that it is adapted from a board game. There's not many movies like that around. And if they are, they're Super Mario Brothers or horror films. That's basically it. Clue is the outlier where it's a zany Mel Brooks-ish type of comedy. Uh, but Jonathan Lynn, I think he's British. Anyway, uh, uh, yeah. And, um, and, we, and he also did My Cousin Vinny. So, that, so that's why I chose uh, Clue. I have it on DVD. And it was a kind of a flop. The budget was $15 million and the box office was 14.6. It, uh, one of the main dudes for this, this was Jonathan Lynn's first movie. Uh, he wrote and directed it based off of John Landis's idea. And he was famous uh, for, he directed the thriller vi video, Trading Animal Places, House. Animal House, American Werewolf in L London, Beverly Hills Cop 3, Coming to America. He had a bunch of hits, and this was one of his few uh, flops. So it was just about time that I uh, gave this, you know, put this, put this in. Uh, the mix, the mix here, and Tim Curry's performance in this—it's a—it's—it's it's masterful. Even the idea of it. Anyway, okay, so that's my my thing. Uh, one, all right, all right. So tell us a little bit about the the film, the structure, and the plot. The film takes place basically in like ninety nine percent of it takes place inside this house, uh, and. Everybody shows up to this dinner party and they're asked to use their aliases. And they all find out through conversation that they're all being blackmailed. And they were all came there to confront their blackmailer and make this, uh, uh, you know, make the financial obligation uh, just, you know, justify to, to end this, uh, to end the blackmail. 
then they find out that you know there was a guy there and he's like uh wadsworth is the butler who arranged this me- meeting and the blackmailer is a man named mr body so but mr body shows up with weapons and he hands them all out to six guests and they each have a lethal weapon and mr body shuts the door turns off you know he shuts the door and says the only way that everyone here gets out alive without going to jail. You know, the, the only way that everybody gets out of here without going to jail is to kill Wadsworth now. And he, cl- and he turns off the lights and then chaos ensues. And I just think it's just fascinating and a masterful script because there's literally three endings. You could watch a, You could watch the movie and you could put it together yourself three different ways. To me, that's amazing. I actually, I saw Jonathan Lynn once at a film forum because they were going to play this movie on the big screen. I went down there with my DVD. I saw him sitting there, but I was too chicken to actually ask him to sign it. I get, but around celebrities, I kind of flip out. So I just, you know, stay away. Anyway, I watch it again. But when, during his talk, he said that it took him, it, it took him, the dialogue took him three weeks to write the dialogue. And it took him eight months to write everything else. And he said he had the board, the board game there, and he was trying to work out how to do what and where to and where to do everything, everything else. Not only that, the story is very loyal and faithful to the game. Mm-hmm. Because they even say it's like I killed Wadsworth in the hallway with the revolver. You know, they say it. So that's uh basically the thing. I'm excited to hear what you guys have to say about. It. All right, I guess I'll go first. Um, Abram, I, I'm kicking it to Abram here. All right, well, so if I've seen this film, if I had seen this film before, um, I saw it uh, maybe um, when I was a child. I, I have vague recollections of it being on in the background or something. So I, this was essentially, for all intents and purposes, this is the first time I've ever seen this. Uh, film and um i only watched it once uh and so i didn't get to i didn't have the benefit of like going back and actually looking to see if the you know if the structure of those last of those alternate endings actually works if the person who was accused of doing the murder the first in the first ending was actually not present in the scene where they were supposed to be not all that stuff but I'm assuming that everything was was worked out well um, and that all the, the there's a lot of detail. And that's kind of that's that's really cool. Uh, I was mostly taken by the style of the whole thing and the humor. And it all reminded me of Mel Brooks, particularly Young Frankenstein. Uh, it seemed like a lot of the, the there was a lot of shtick that was borrowed from Mel Brooks, but it was done. I thought it was done pretty tastefully. I, I thought. You know, the movie was really physical well comedy too. Yeah, a lot of physical comedy, a lot of sexual comedy. Um, you know, uh, the the it had a really cool vibe to it. It's like it, I can see why it's the type of movie that you want to watch over and over again. It's almost like it's almost like visiting with you know a, a really cool family of friends yeah. or whatever. <laughs> it's like having like you know, yeah. And um, I, I totally get why you why it holds that special place for you, especially since you were exposed to it at such a young age. And uh, overall, I, I, I totally, I thoroughly enjoyed the film. I would see it again. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I don't really have 
I don't really have any complaints about it. I, I'm, it's, I could pick apart little things, but um, overall, you know, it's not a serious movie. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's a very, and, and it's, it's totally unique. I mean, the idea of making a film based on a board game and then being faithful to the board game, that's pretty awesome. And I would say that it made sense. Yeah, and as unusual a film as it is, the fact that um, the fact that like it almost broke even is, I'd say it's pretty good. Like because it's not, I can see that this film having a a struggling to capture an audience in 1985. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's totally different from all the other kinds of movies that were coming out. That time. Oh, and if I if I may add to that, the movie does have three different endings. Yeah, three different. But what, when it was released, each ending was in a separate location in the country. So if you're on the west coast, the murderer was this. If you're in the central, the murderer uh-huh. was th- these. And uh, the filmmakers thought that would create buzz, but it didn't because internet wasn't a thing then, and uh, so. So people, because the end, because it is like 96 minutes or 90, like 90 minutes without the, like the credits. So you're almost kind of cheated out of 10 minutes by only getting one ending, you know? So there's, so there's that. So seeing all three, and then you really see the masterwork of the script that all three endings do fit. I just wanted to add that. So did we never see all three endings until it was released onto VHS or whatever? Correct. That's pretty Mm -hmm. astounding. I mean, but in, in retrospect, it seems absurd that they did that. But yeah. if you think about like 1985, like you said, I mean, it, it and, and nobody had ever attempted anything like that before, to my knowledge. This is the first and last I've heard of such a thing with alternate endings being featured with different alternate endings in different cinemas around the country. Um, you know, it's a quite a novel concept. So um, I got to give it like a lot. You know, just a lot of props just based on the novelty and of the whole concept. Mm. Right. I hear Seth doesn't like it. I I didn't say that I didn't like it. Did I say I didn't like it? Well, yes. Seth, tell us. Tell us. <laughs> it's the best movie based off a board game I've ever seen in my entire life. And it's way better than Super, than Super Mario, Mario Brothers. Brothers. Yeah. Super, by by <laughs> the way, guys, think of a world. On, any of you guys out there who are confused, Super Mario Brothers is not a board game. Oh, oh yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> You're, I'm just saying right. it's better right. than other game movies. Except maybe movies like about an actual game that's in sports. But outside of that, any game that you play, this is the best movie. Only movie. And you could not like the movie. It's okay. It's the best one. I think you're lying. And here's the thing. Imagine a world where this was a hit. There would be a Game of Life movie. There would be a Foursquare. Here's this diagonally. Double Trouble. Remember Double Trouble? Double Trouble. Sorry. (laughs) Top Lang. Candy Lang. Legoland movie. Oh, yeah, everyone. That's I didn't play Clue um, as a kid. So I think that I think that people probably thought this was a kid's movie. Did they, yeah. Is there any information that they got sabotaged by the studio and advertising it? No. No. 
Okay, because I'd love to see that because this movie is so ahead of its time. This movie is like when they do a new when they do the end of Game of Thrones, and they're afraid people are going to get it. They write alternate endings and they put them out on the internet or tell people with big mouths and spread mm -hmm. false information. They do that with Star Wars. They do it with a, a bunch of stuff. In fact, they changed uh, Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, because it got out that Leonard Nimoy was going to die. So mm -hmm. they kill him in the simulation in the beginning. And they're like, oh, that's what must have happened. It got all the fans calmed down, and then Spock dies. So anyway, but that's another movie, which is not obscure. Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. Um, the performances in this movie are brilliant. All the actors are great. Um, they have decent pedigrees as far as their training. Um, actually, Leslie Ann Warren, I believe, is still the youngest woman to get into the actor's studio at 17. Oh, wow. There's a boy who's younger. But um, I wish that I wish that they did even more as the individual actors with their character. That's that's my only thing. Like I, I and 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 this is my other thing about it. I did see it when I was young, and it left very little impression on me. I saw it last night, and I was in the subway, and I'm like, you know, those films that you think about all the time. This isn't one of them. Mm. Um, I, I agree. No, I agree. I agree. He's right. It's not deep. I, Sean never told me the story about him, but I thought, wouldn't this be a great movie to be stuck in a cabin with a VHS and only this? That's what I thought when I watched it. And I didn't know that. That was, that was your story. So it was that, that I really liked. Um, and it makes sense. Yeah, you know, I, I think there's something about Tim Curry. Um, He's so good he, in this well, movie. He he is the movie, just like he is mm -hmm. the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I feel like only a guy like Tim Curry could create a movie that people, um, like, dress up and go to the theater to watch and reenact. And I think Clue, like Rocky Horror Picture Show, could very well have been one of those cult films where they played in Chelsea every weekend, just like they still do with the Rocky Horror Picture Show, where people are filling in the lines for the characters. I mean, it's not quite on the level of Rocky Horror Picture Show in terms of that, but it has some of those qualities to it, which um, I don't know if it's Tim Curry or if it's just a coincidence, but there's that, that guy has something that no other actor I've ever seen has. He has an ability to captivate. You just want to like, he draws you mm -hmm. in. You know, he's, he's like a, yeah, he's impossible to ignore. Yeah, he's like a star quarterback on a yeah. football team. He drives the whole movie. The, the things he does with his eyes in close-up shots are amazing. And like, Jonathan Lynn's script, when you told me that, dialogue is brilliant. He wrote for Yes Minister, which I think... Did he? Yeah, I think that was his big break. And uh, my my friend, and Judy knows him too, Rob Clare, I think, mm -hmm. knows him 
from working on Yes Minister. Before we get a lot deeper into the, the, the back and forth, I really want to hear what Judy has to say. Okay. Judy. Impression. Oh, I, I, I didn't even have to watch the film. I did watch the film the other night, but um, I have very, very fond memories of Clue. It was on my list as well. Um, and one of my biggest memories is we used to go to the VHS store. My mom would take my, I was born in the eighties and we would go to the VHS store on like a Friday or something to get a video for the weekend to watch. And I just remember several times and I don't know how, I don't remember my first experience watching Clue, but I just remember getting my shoes on and my mom, like turning around at the door and being like, and we are not getting Clue again. <laughs> like she was just like, I'm tired of paying for it. I'm tired of seeing it. We're watching something different. I probably have to, I should have asked her how many times we must have rented that movie, but she was just like, I'm not, I'm not paying for it anymore. You're getting something new. Um, but I, and I remember being like, oh, because like we probably would have watched it again. So for me, it has, um, and I was also thinking too, I used to love those choose your own adventure stories that you oh, read yeah. as a kid where you're like, oh, let me go back to that page. I want to choose the other thing. And so the movie has something. And um, Sean, when you were mentioned about, about, I wonder what the experience of watching the movie without the alternate endings would have been. I don't think it would have had the same effect. Not that I would have disliked the movie, but there was something, there was something exciting where like you hear the story and you're like, Oh, that makes sense. And then they're like, but what if, and then you're like, wait, what? And it just sort of, I think it's that like, I like puzzles and I like storylines and characters and um, yeah, it's just got those great, Great lines, and yes, it's not like a deep film, but but I I like that. I've never been a huge fan of like the Oscar movies where you have to tell this like deep story about like the Holocaust or um um you know someone switching their gender or something like to make an Oscar winning film like like there's the other, there's, girl yeah <laughs> right. there's that, also psychopaths and cancer. Yes, and yes, yeah, all of the above. Yeah. Psychopaths, cancer, and the Holocaust. Someone, yeah. yeah, exactly. And then you'd have another Oscar winner played by, you know, Kate Winslet. Um, but there, I, I believe that filmmaking, as Sean alluded to, is not just about these, like, in-depth stories that are supposed to be, like, these tearjerkers and provoke thought for weeks. But there's some great movies that you just turn on when you're stuck in the cabin or when you're with your friends or when you're depressed, you know, um, like when I went through something, I watched something because I just needed to like escape and just enjoy a laugh. Something that was a little bit dark, you know, um, and I think that that's the purpose of filmmaking a lot of times. I think people don't look at that. That's why they always overlook comedy and horror, you know, um, but those are hard to make. So I well, give them a lot of credit. I would almost that. go as far as to say if it's a serious film, it has to have some horror or comedy or some other little has to have something kind of like whimsical about it. Or else, what are you doing? You're just watching a, you're watching like a reality TV show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there needs to be some, some sort of spin. The old uh, actor studio director, Joe Chaikin, mm. who worked with Sam she Shepard a lot, uh, he always said that he would always go to the cast before performance and say, hey, a homeless guy is in the audience tonight. And then he would leave. The next night he would say, hey, the Queen of England is in the audience tonight. Mm -hmm. So, you know, do your best. And then he would leave. He would just give everybody at least an iota of a, of a focus. All yeah. of them have the same fo focus and they could get into their ca their characters. You could get too much into your ca your character, though. You know, you, you do need a, a focus because an audience is watching it within real time. You know, uh, 
But I, I actually was on the subway once and I was talking to my, uh, uh, my girlfriend at the time here like this. And I was hearing a voice and I couldn't concentrate on what she was saying because I knew that voice. And I turn and it's Michael McKean who played Mr. Green with his lovely wife. By the way, the man is eight feet tall. His legs were sticking out halfway through the. Was, He's a giant. Was he Lenny or Squiggy? He was Lenny, right? He was. I forget. I forget. But he was. Yeah, right. He's from Happy Days. Happy uh, Days. The other one. The other one. Oh. Laverne and Shirley, the spinoff. Oh, Laverne and Shirley. All right, I couldn't. Lenny and Squiggy, yeah. the two guys who lived together and always had their arm around each other. Yeah, yeah, and like the jackets. And I turn to him like I go, uh, Mike. And he turned to me, he's like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, wow, I don't know. I didn't know what to say, you know, because I didn't want to flip out because I flip out <laughs> with celebrities. So I just wanted to just be like, hey, man, I'm just a big fan. I've seen Clue. And I was going to tell him how many times I saw it, then realized I would make an ass out of myself. So I said, I just saw it a, a bunch of times. And I, and I showed it to her when I got serious with her. And she was there. And I turned to him. So I just want to say I'm a big, I'm a big fan. And he's like, uh, oh, oh, OK. Uh, uh, I, I told you it wasn't me. He said that as in the catchphrase for Clue. Mm. I told you it wasn't me, but that's not what he says. He says, I told you I didn't do it in the movie. But whatever. He got his, he got his own catchphrase <laughs> wrong. But still, <laughs> thank you, Mike. That was, How many that years was, later really was this? How many years later from 1986? Oh, this happened in 2014-ish. Okay. So, well, he's yeah. no Carrie Fisher. He knew all her lines. Did you really? Bless her, bless her heart. I just, I just, I just saw that. I just saw that too. People would uh, stop her and want to do scenes with her. She would entertain that. So, so here's something that I noticed uh, again. Now that I'm really lo looking at it, the costumes for everybody mm -hmm. as they all show show up. They are all they are all in their different co colors. I like it how how Miss White was in all black. I dug I dug that. Uh, Madeline Kahn, and she played it kind of hoity, which I really enjoyed. But as each, as the movie went on, they kept on, the men took off their jackets, uh, you know, untied, the like Professor Plum unties his tie, Mrs. Miss White takes off her hat, Miss uh, Scar Scarlet's uh, shawl is off, Mrs. Peacock's thing got onto the side. Oh, and one last, you know, I just dig all that. Did you guys ever, did you guys, uh, Get in, get into that too. And I'm, as I'm saying that, I'm just realizing some something that I have a thing for French maids, and I think that's because of Yvette. I really, do, I mean, oh, okay, I'm not alone. All right, good. Yeah, I was looking. Do French maids all dress like that? They do yes. on the Benny Hill show. Yes, yes, they do. <laughs> yes, yes, they do. No maid looks like that. It was like, I think that's why I have a thing for French maids because they, they, they didn't have too many boob jokes and the one, you know, which was kind of cool. They, I think they only had four, which is all right. But, you know, there was that. And I'm just I'm just thinking of it now. But I just saw that uh, that just one focus that they had of just, you know, the costumes getting like de-robed for Mr. Green. He, he didn't actually de-robe de at all. I think that's, uh, you know, because he was carrying a gun like like the whole the whole time. But like the first ending was Mrs. Peacock. She killed everybody because she thought that the uh, uh, the cook was leaking secrets because she was taking bribes because she was a senator's wife. And the second one, it was Yvette killed two people. Then Miss Scarlet killed a vet. 
And then the third one is that everyone killed somebody except for Mr. Green, who wound up being an FBI agent. Hmm. And that just, the whole and that the guy behind everything off. was actually Mr. Wadsworth. Right. But what was Wadsworth actually was the Mr. Body. He goes Mr. Body. Mr. Body. <laughs> That's right. I can't okay, even do it. But my, my problem with that ending is then who was the guy who played Mr. Body? Butler. Butler. Okay, so he convinced his butler to pretend to be him for the charade. Like, it yeah. seems, yeah, is that what happened? Yes, you know, in the diegetic world of the of the movie, yes, and it seems weird because in the beginning they had that scene with the conservatory. It's only glass. He was ready to watch it, and then you know, break it, and the dog comes comes up. So basically, he double crossed his butler. Like he told it. I mean, we were we're made to assume that. In that final ending, that Tim Curry's character, Mr. Wadsworth, was actually the the head of the household in tra- in control, in charge of everything, and that the guy in the beginning of the you know who comes in it, that they basically worked out an elaborate charade between the two of them with some sort of uh, with what intention with the intent to get rid of. Mr. Body's network of spies and informants. It saved him a right. lot of trouble. Okay. This is the usual suspects before the usual suspects. But it's also, yeah, it's you're right. It's Kaiser Soze. It's Kaiser Soze. Yep. It's Kaiser I just think that's great Good because insight. in the ending of the Wadsworth ending, in that ending, the whole story opens up and he has this network of spies and informants. He's kind of like Ferris Bueller as an adult. If <laughs> Ferris Bueller, no, but if Ferris Bueller was evil, is that one thing that's cool about Ferris Bueller? He's well connected. Everybody knows him. He's a nice guy. He can get you favors, but the evil one. So I see Tim Curry in another movie doing all this shit and whatever else. And then he's like, I got to get rid of all my, and he thought of it in his head. That's like Benjamin Linus from Lost level of conniving. It, it, it just opened up the story so much. I was amazing. Well, that's and another... I just saw it again. That's, that's an interesting perspective on this, on this film because we think of it as a, a, like a murder mystery or a crime drama or a, some weird movie based on a board game that's never been done before. But it's actually kind of like a... Kind of like a it's a Sherlock job. Holmes novel. It's a con job. It's, a, it's yeah. a Sherlock Holmes novel and it's a con artist. It's like one big long con. And you don't find out what the con is until the very end. Yeah, there's a master criminal in Sherlock Holmes named Moriarty. Moriarty. And that's sort of the archetype for the English master criminal who like yeah. sits behind in the Professor. shadows. Professor Mo- Moriarty. Professor, because he's, he's smart. Professor too, yeah. Is he's smart, yeah, and all that yeah. stuff. So, and he's just he's just inter- interconnected. Murray is uh, a really underrated actor. Not by his fans, but mm. his popularity should be like yeah, Oscar level. He, can Agreed. I tell you something? There was this sick this this sitcom that lasted a season called Over the Top. Nothing to do with the Stallone film, and it starred Annie Potts and Tim Curry. And it's on YouTube. And I saw like the first half season just to see Tim, and he is funny. Uh, you know, the, the show wasn't good, but he was he was funny. But he, I think he had a stroke and only the left side of his face works now or something. 
I remember seeing him and he was the, he was a criminal. He was a killer in a criminal minds episode. And I like that shit. So was Mark Hamill too. He was a killer in a criminal minds. That was a good one. But, uh, but also this was 1985. The next year was 1986 where Tim Curry played darkness in the fantasy cult film legend starring Tom Cruise and Mia mm. Sarah. He played also he had the an horns. obscure film. Also, yeah, that Scott. is that is an yeah. obscure film. And but yeah, so he did. So he had all this range. I mean, I mean, I I liked it. There wasn't many fantasy films back back then, uh, but that was like that was like a like another thing. Uh, and what year year did he do it? It was nineteen ninety. Nineteen ninety. He was the original Pennywise, and he scared and also oh god out of everybody. Yeah, no, he like, did. He was he was one of the scariest things. Funny, yeah. funny you mentioned that because he auditioned. For Judge Doom in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and Robert Zemeckis said that he went with Christopher Lloyd because Tim Curry was too creepy. I just see that. Like I would there's have loved to about, seen. Yeah. yeah. No, there's there's something. Yes, there's something about him that you can't quite figure him out, and it's in his eyes. He's just um, like is. I don't even know. It's it's beyond like hard to read. There's just like a there's something. It's like he's very good at playing very layered characters. You can't quite like look at his eyes and go. Going out. So it always so it it can come off as creepy. And then if he plays it creepy, it's super. He's creepy. otherworldly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's like a he's like royal or something. Like he you know. Yeah. Can't look at him for too long. This this is what an actor, like a master actor, used to be. There used to be actors like Stella Adler's father, uh, Jacob Adler, um, the guy Booth, not the one who shot Lincoln, but his father, um, his brother, his brother. I thought it was his father. It was his brother, the one who was brother. Right? I thought the father was legendary. Probably him too. It was a family. But anyway, yeah. these are these are these actors who like every night put on a wig or a beard. Like today, I'm King Lear, and then you go another day and you have a hunchback. Today, I'm Richard the Third, and they could sing. You know, mm -hmm. Tim could sing. Tim could sing. Yeah, oh, yeah. he's one of those guys. Yeah. Um, he's a he's he's an antique. He's a throwback for sure. Who else is like that? I mean, there's not many. Unfortunately, um, he's in a wheelchair. He's been in a wheelchair time. since 2012. He hasn't been doing much live action, but he's been, he still does a lot of voiceovers, apparently. Yeah. But he really, we really, he needs, he needs the ultimate props because, like, he carried this movie. This is, it, it, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't have this anywhere remotely the same feeling if it wasn't for him. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true because because uh, he played because in uh, one of the endings he was a he was a good guy but in, in, in like two of them and then he was a and then he was a bad guy. But even like some of the things, remember when he got that call from J. Edgar Hoover and uh, he's like, mm -hmm. "Why is J. Edgar Hoover calling on your phone?" And he said, uh, "He's on everybody else's. Why wouldn't he be on mine?" Or even you know, and even when uh, Colonel Mustard said, "How did you know know that?" About uh, Miss White, Mrs. White's like husband with the work on the nuclear fusion bomb, nuclear fit physicist. 
And Tim Curry leans in and says, can you keep a secret? Yeah, so can I. And it like gives us this way of, of like he's never letting anything go. And there's a and you could kind of tell like there's like an undercurrent in there. Of course, it's mainly in like the writing, I guess. Wait, but Sean, the way that when, he does it. When is this film supposed to be taking place? Because it's clearly it's, not. It's 1954. Like spe- specifically. They mentioned 54. Senator McCarthy. They mentioned the McCarthy yeah, trial. In 1954, they, New England. Yeah, they mentioned Jack But uh, that's why I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if the film was people. trying to be anachronistic or something. It said, or if you want to double up, see Clue and Meeting the Ricardos. They're the same, exact same. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. And they both have J. Edgar Hoover phone calls in them. <laughs> phone call from J. Edgar Hoover. It sounds like a punk rock song. Abram, it sounds like a song you could write. Yeah, I was kind of surprised, though, that it took place in the 50s. Outside of those references, just from a style perspective, because when I, I watched the movie a lot in the 80s, and I don't know how much I've seen it since then. And then when I watched it the other night and it showed whatever the year was in the beginning of the film, it said like 1954 or something. And I was like, oh, it sort of like caught me off guard because if you take that away and you watch the film and, and you say, oh, this was shot in, it's very timeless in a way. Yeah, I can There's see no that. like hairstyle that's like, oh, that was, that was 50s or 80s or it's just... Like you could watch it now and go like, oh yeah, people look like that now. Yeah, it's I very. That. I just was like, oh, that's the fifties. Okay, if you took I away, do, all yeah, those- like Miss Scarlet's dress was was pretty hot actually. Yeah, mm-hmm. and even that whole thing, she was like a a, a madam, and she ran madam, a, yeah. a a phone service, which I thought was hot. I guess they had that sort of thing back then, and uh. A uh, uh, hotel where a man could rent a woman for a short while or something. Wait, is it just it? me or were they trying to dial her and make her look like Susan Sarandon? From yeah, I guess. Yeah, like she, I guess they like, both got them big eyes. <laughs> Susan Sarandon was in Rocky Horror Picture Show. Exactly. Too. I don't know. Actually, what I found out here is that Carrie Fisher was originally cast to play Miss Scarlet. But she had to withdraw because she had to enter drug and alcohol treat treatment. But I just thought that was that was pretty pretty cool. I got a question for Judy. Judy, yeah. did you notice uh, uh, the directing and how a lot of the comedy in this film is done? Uh, they shot for the comedy as opposed to having the comedy in the edit, kind of like Arrested Development. But Clue mm-hmm. takes, I guess, that Mel Brooks approach by having longer takes and more choreographed blocking to mm-hmm. uh, get those psych gags in, like in there. What did how? What did you think of, of that? I don't. I I don't know. Honestly, <laughs> I'm like, I um, no. I thought it was. I thought it was great. Sometimes, for, I think. Let me rephrase that. Sometimes for me, the line between directing who did it was it the director was it the actor i'm not sure which is which um seth what do you think about that question i think it relies heavily on its tailoring by the director and the editor well yeah but but take the direction well take the editing out of the equation um, to address what, yeah, what you know, let's say you do for a minute, you take the editing out of the equation and you look at some of these shots that are long. Yeah. Okay. You know, we're talking about a continuous, continuous action. It's almost like, um, this was like a lot of this seemed like choreographed dancing to me. 
Like yeah. it, it, it wasn't like this was a very technically masterful uh, film from the editing and directing perspective, but also from the action perspective. Like you have to get, you know, you have a two minute shot where everybody's scrambling around and running around and it's all this, this mm. physical comedy that has to be seamless from the perspective of the acting. So, I mean, this mm. is like, I would say this is a very technically masterful film from the level of the acting, from the level of the directing and from the level of the editing. I think everybody deserves yeah. equal credit as far as what Sean's bringing up in terms of the style of, of uh, um, yeah. you know, the comedic shots. Yeah, because it's because not like quick cuts. There's not like tons of quick cuts yeah. here. No, it's a lot of long shots. But also, I think a good director holds that space for the actors, so they Absolutely. feel safe to to go. And I don't know what the rehearsal schedule was like on this for them to test out different things, or if the direction was just so clear and so thought out prior. That's the stuff I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, and to, to give Seth his due, I, I would I would I would suspect I would I would guess that there was a tremendous amount of uh, footage shot that they had to do. They had to probably do these many, many, many takes. I'm just going to guess because it just seems very difficult. These are difficult yeah. shots to get yeah. right the first time. I don't know. What do you think I about can that? Imagine right? what it was like shooting this movie. It was yeah. probably pretty grueling shooting this movie. Well, I mean, the mm -hmm. fact that it costs $15 million and it just takes place in a house. One yeah, house. Actually, I, I heard an, interv an interview from Michael McKean, another interview from Michael McKean. I forget what show he, he was on, but they were all like younger folk and comedians. Well, not all of them were younger, but they were all making each other laugh between Madeline Kahn and, and uh, mm -hmm. you know, Christopher Lloyd. But... Uh, Michael McKean said that Tim always would say something before every take or most every takes. And he said, remember, something serious happened here. And then they would roll and then they would do it. They would all make each other laugh. New setup. They're talking. And he's like, wait, remember, something serious happened here. And then they would do it. And I because I, I saw that I because I noticed that, too, again, like, why am I still laughing? I'm still laughing at the movie. I think it's hysterical. I could watch it. Honestly, if we talk about it some more, I'm going to want to watch it again. But, uh, uh, you know, like, why is, is that? Because the story is so, like, steadfast in murder. There's that, six murders. That tends to be Jonathan Lynn in all of his films. Let me just say, five people died in Hamlet. Include six people died. But it's still funny and how that, and I think it was because it was like if they all remembered that one of them is the murderer, and they and they have that in their heads, you know. The comedy comes out more because it's because the comedy is basically in the fit, in, you know, in the blocking and in I, the writing. I with love the, this the kind of comedy because it's played for yeah. truth. Yes, it's serious. Like it's to them, very yucks, serious. Which is why I want to address the uh, the elephant in the room. Even as a little kid, I was always what's up with Martin Mall? Why does he work so much? He's always, he's always, he's, he's one of those actors who can only do one character. Yeah, this is his best movie, but yeah, I understand. And he's not that funny. Everyone else is, you know, they're still being very much in the style of what they look like. But there is some affectation, and um, Martin Mull never does that kind of stuff. 
So he's kind of the weakest link for me. But I know he works all the time. So God bless him. He's he started as a uh, like sampler with a guitar. One of those can be. Wait, so was Martin, I don't know Martin Mull that well. Was he always known as a comedic actor or character actor or? Kind of. character actor who came out of comedy with, that he would do like he was a folk music. That's it was, he, he was in a, an old show with Fred Willard in the 70s called Fernwood Tonight. That was a talk show, but it was scripted. It was, a, it was like a Dick Cavett style show, but it was all script, like scripted. And they would do skits and stuff and have weird guests and do skits and like whatever else. And Fred Willard is hysterical. He's funnier than Martin Mull. But I do see what Seth is saying because then Martin Mull lingered around. He started doing painting. His artwork is actually fascinating. And then he got on to Roseanne in like the last four seasons or something. He was on in like season two and then he came on again. He's perfect for Roseanne. Yeah. Yeah. So I think he's a second city guy. It's something like that, yeah. He's he's like a Bill Murray type. He's like Bill Murray light, at least back back he's then. Like Bill he, Murray. Yeah, back he's then. like he's like he's like John Belushi's brother, Jim. Like, like me some Jim Belushi. No mm. joke. Okay, well, before we get too far, let's give our final thoughts. So let's start with Seth. Final thoughts well, before we get really to next. Great time. technical movie, like watching the gears of a perfect clock. See it with um. Meeting the Ricardos, uh, you get like the same year. And it's both physical comedy, how grueling physical comedy is, and uh, that. And um, yeah, it's, um, that's all I got to say. Oh, and Colleen Camp was one of the Playboy uh, Bunnies in Apocalypse Now. <laughs> it was cut out and is in the director's cut. He's one of the girls. It's- and say what? In what movie I missed it? Apocalypse, Apocalypse Now. Now. Oh. He's pretty hot. Okay, I'll go, I'll go next. Uh, final thoughts is that this movie is spiritual. Uh, I love the, co- the costumes. And if I was ever worth hundreds of millions of dollars, if I, not even a millionaire, I would have to be very w- wealthy. What I would do with that money was build me the house in Clue and live in it. And I'm not kidding. Everything, the ashtray, I want everything how it is, the upstairs, the dining room, the kitchen. I would love to have, I would love to hang out in that kitchen. I would just hang out in the kitchen on a folding chair with a little TV smoking cigarettes. I really would like, so that's my final thoughts is that this, oh God, I just, I, I, everything, I'm going to want to watch it again. I, uh, Seth borrowed my DVD. I'm going to bring it, I'm going to come over tomorrow <laughs> and okay. get that DVD so I can bring yeah. it back. Okay. Abram, any final thoughts? Yeah. Um, you know, I, even after doing this with you guys, um, after, after this pot, um, this episode, I'm like even more enamored of it. Like it is, there's a lot, there's a lot to this movie. If you're into film from a technical standpoint, if you're a movie buff, um, I think it's an essential movie. Uh, not just for people who like obscure cold films like this. I think this is an essential piece of filmmaking history that has a lot of uh, interesting things to offer. Uh, it's a very cozy movie. Um, I do. I like. I want to. I want to watch. I want to watch it with my kids. I want. You know, it's like one of those things. I think if I if I had watched this. You know, if I'd seen it for the first time at a younger age, it would have become 
like for me what it is for Sean. And it is definitely, um, I can see how like this becomes a movie that has tradition attached to it that people want to pass on to later generations. So um, yeah, that's it. I mean, I don't really have that much else to say. Very technically masterful, very interesting from the technical standpoint. Acting, it's a great clinic in comedic acting and physical acting. Um, I, I think it hits, it hits all the right notes. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it and I'm definitely, I, I will definitely see it again. Hmm. Well, I don't have too much to add to that from what everyone said. The only thing I would add is um, what Sean made me think of when you said you would uh, have someone put together the house for you. And I don't know if you ever guys are familiar with Slate No More. I don't know if it's happening still in New York City where it's an immersive theater. And I almost feel like Clue would be a really fun immersive theater experience to sort of like right. dress up and sort of follow those characters around. Um, and it is, and I, what I love about it is that it's one of those films where um, it's not, or at least I don't think it could just be me. I don't think it's offensive to people. It's something that all different types and ages can watch. I don't know how young I would go. My daughter's five. I don't think I would introduce it to her yet, but maybe when she's like eight or nine, maybe um, not, not so much for little ones. Cause she still talks about Orca and about how, she, how whales eat people. Um, so he ate the guy. So killer whales eat men. I'm like, okay, no, it's just a movie anyway. No, okay. So I love my lesson. So with that, let's uh, have Seth talk about our next film selection. Yeah, the only way you could get offended by Clue is if you were really into diversity. It's and you're 2022. Like, this, is such, this is such a white, <laughs> such a white All movie. People. Well, there's Even a black the cop it. in it. The black cop? Oh, yeah, the black cop, yeah. Yeah, that's okay. cool. He's a person of authority, you know? Yeah. And why would you win? All right. All right, Seth, sock it to us. We have never done a documentary. I was thinking about Devil Rides Out, but that's a horror movie, folk horror. I was thinking about uh, Witchfinder General, but no, we're gonna do a great movie called Private Practices, the story of a sex surrogate. Now, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's for guys who have trouble with women and uh, they see a therapist. And the therapist goes, why don't you meet with this woman once a week for a couple of sessions until you have sex with her? And then you'll be better. I don't, I don't, believe, I don't believe you. I don't and believe you. there's a guy you. named Kipper in it. Kipper? Kipper. A 40-year-old virgin named Kipper. Kipper. <laughs> okay, Seth, I need, um, I need the title again. And What year was it released? It's in, from the 80s. Hold on. Oh, it came out in the 80s? Oh, my God. This is gonna it's be 1986. It's called Private Practices. Story of a Sex Worker. 1985. It was made, it was, it was made probably made even before that because it's a documentary. In 1985, director Kirby Dick, from this, who also did this film, is not yet rated, which I love, leaves a fascinating study of the curious role of a sex surrogate. Okay, private practices is the entire title, or yeah. Well, then there's a colon. colon, in it. colon what? What is it? Colon the story of the sex surrogate. Okay, the private story practices. Of a, 
Private practices, the story of a sex surrogate. You know where we can watch it? Yeah, where can we watch it? It is on Apple TV. I, I checked. I don't know if it's in other places, but I know it's on Apple TV. Okay. Okay, cool. If, if if we can't all find it, then we'll do either Devil's Ride Out or Oh, uh, we'll, we'll do it. We'll find no, it. I'm sure no, it's we'll, there. We'll find it. Yeah. Okay. okay so, this is... Excellent. Um, cool. And I'll be bringing my sex surrogate as a guest. I don't have a sex anymore. <laughs> I, don't know, uh, I, never have. I was a mock dater. This yeah. is my. This is my. This is my sex surrogate, baby. I get weird. I'm sorry. Judy, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. What did you say? Oh, no, no, no. It's fine. Oh. Judy was right, a mock-gator. I was talking about this uh, last week. No, no. The other Two days ago, I was telling this girl, yeah, my friend used to sit there and have a mock date. And my other friend, my boss, really, um, he's well, not my friend anymore. Um, he would take notes, mm-hmm. take notes, friendly. And then <laughs> Judy would leave. Would you give feedback? I would give feedback, yeah. Let's talk about it next week. Because I'm sure you have a lot <laughs> to share. It's one of those <laughs> things where if I'm ever having like a, a conversation and people are like, don't know what to talk about, I'll be like, you know, I used to be a mock dater. And they're like, what? Wait, Ju- wait Judy, Judy, Judy. So it was like being a, like a patient in a medical school? Yeah. I guess, yeah. I would go on a, like a date. We needed a mock dater, and I was like, I know. Wait, so wait, hold on, Judy, Judy, I, Judy. I know you're a married woman, but who? Any of those guys? Uh, you know, coffee date. No, no, but any, yeah, I know, but any. Come on, right? you could. Not a chance. Well, well guys, if you want to hear more about Judy's mock dating, join us next week. Our private practices, the story of a sex surrogate.